Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Dana Beach, who's recently retired from the Coastal Conservation League. And we're going to talk about his career, how he got into conservation, and also what the league has been about and what it's going to do in the future. So, Dana, welcome to the journal. It's wonderful to be here, Walter. Thank you for asking me. Well, our listeners always like to know about our guests. And so I know a great deal about you. (laughs) But let's tell our listeners who you are, where you came from, and how did you get into conservation? Because I know when you went to Davidson, you didn't, they didn't have a course in conservation. They did not. They had a course in biology that was biology for non-biology majors that I took. And we went to the sewage treatment plant, I remember. Maybe that was my first exposure to environmental technology. But you, you are a Columbia boy. Right. I, I was born in Columbia. My mother is from Columbia. My father was from Spartanburg. And I was born here, spent my whole life here until college, until going to Davidson. And my family still mostly lives here. My brother's a lawyer here and my cousin's do various things and are a great group of family members to have. You majored in math at Davidson. Right. So, I, so what are you going to do with the math major? I would had no idea what I was going to do with a college degree. I'm now amazed at how young people seem to know so much more about what they want to do. But when I was at Davidson, one, it was a liberal arts college, which meant for me that I could sort of take anything I wanted, and I, I took literature, history, Greek drama, and math. And I liked math, and my cousin Frank in Greenville had been a math major, and I thought, well, that sounds like a good major for me. I'm not sure what I'll use it for, but I like it. So you're graduating in 1977. Um, That's post-draft, so you don't have to worry about that. So what are you going to do? Well, Didn't your father say, son, what are you going to do with your graduate when you graduate from college? My my parents were very uh, non-interventionist in what I ended up doing. And to their credit, I think they didn't uh, – my mother would occasionally uh, say she hoped that I would become a banker like some of the uh, people whom she admired and knew in Columbia. Uh, and so that was that was one – thing that was thrown out but not not promoted heavily. And so what really made the difference was when I, as I got uh, into my senior year, I guess really my junior year, my, my roommate at Davidson was just absolutely determined to go to business school. And so he, he was looking into which ones were the best ones to go to and applied to the top five. And again, I sort of thought, well, not knowing anything else to do. That seems like another good option. It turned out actually to be a bad decision to go straight to business school, and now almost no one does that because you don't really have a point of reference to understand why you're learning what you're learning. Uh, But it was great for me because I was able to get to Philadelphia and University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, so they went to Wharton School of Business. Right. Not a a bad place to land for somebody who didn't really care about going to graduate school of business. (laughs) Well, again, there was a lot of luck there, but I enjoyed it uh, to a degree, but I didn't really, it didn't light my fire about business, I'll have to say that. Well, was that a two-year program then? It was, yeah. So so we're up to 1979. What's Dana going to do now? Well, Philadelphia was great, but I decided, and I've always loved South Carolina, and I wanted to move back closer to my my friends. I have some great friends from Columbia that I grew up with and my family, and and I decided to try to begin a business career in Columbia. So the first job I had was with Bankers Trust, and at the time, there was a giant Bankers Trust in New York, and then there was the not-quite-as-big Bankers Trust here that eventually became merged with Wachovia, became uh, Bank of America. But I worked for 
bankers trust in the loan audit department. Which oh, wow, was, that sounds really exciting. It was fascinating. <laughs> it was actually interesting because I travel around the state to audit the portfolios of the branch banks. And my colleague and I would always go to barbecue restaurants if we were in the right place on Friday. I was going to say, in, in those days, you wouldn't have gone in the middle of the week, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, in many cases, just Friday and Saturday. That's that's right. And and if we were lucky, Thursday. But we, I learned more about South Carolina during that almost two-year period than I'd learned at least about these more remote little towns, New Allenton and you know, parts of the in the Aiken area, Beach Mountain. I mean, it, it really was fascinating. And also, you know, when you're auditing loans, there are people behind those loans. And I, I was interested in that. I, I, I wouldn't, didn't want to continue that as a career, but it was, it was a good slice of life, really. Well, I'm just thinking about back in the days when it was really just a state bank. So the the local branch, with they were working with the folks they knew to make the loan. And, you know, the guy comes in, some, I guess, maybe he needs a mortgage for his farm. He's got a new pharmacy building he wants to open down in, you mentioned, New Allenton. So it's it really is local history and economics in those days. It absolutely was, and very personal and uh, very, very cultural in that regard. And I remember one branch bank uh, in the Aiken area that we were looking at a loan, and it was it was to an itinerant worker, and it was secured by a by cash in a lockbox. And I thought, why would you do that? And I think he he wanted to establish a credit record, and so which was a very smart thing to do. But we looked at the all the dusty dog-eared documentation, and then I had to go open the lockbox and see if the cash was still there, and it was. Uh, so that was, you know, again, a slice of life that probably isn't a part of people's banking experience today. I mean, it's much more national and corporatized. Yeah. All right. So you're working here for a couple of years. Then what? Well, I wasn't convinced that business was for me. I mean, banking and maybe my particular role in banking wasn't something I was that interested in. But I I had always loved the mountains and the beach. I mean, my, my wife tells me when I brought her down to South Carolina, my wife Virginia, that I took her to all the places I liked to go on vacation when I was younger. But I loved Edisto and I loved Pauly's and I loved Saluda, North Carolina, where my family used to have a house, but I'd go visit my friend Blake Dixon up there and in uh, their family house. So... I thought I've got to get back into this mode of being in those places. And I went up to Saluda, uh, spent some time with my friend Blake, and also my cousin Frank, who was head of the Sierra Club at the time, was leading uh, hiking trips in North Carolina. Is that the Sierra Club for the state of South Carolina? That was, yes, the, the state Sierra Club. I think he was the chapter chairman and also was when you do that you're sort of jack of all trades and he put these wonderful hikes together in parts of North Carolina I didn't really know I'd heard of them before but I didn't know them that well so that's that's getting you into environmental questions perhaps or it, or maybe just an appreciation for what's there in a in very much a non-rational kind of visceral appreciation and just a I just felt better when I was in the mountains and at the beach, and I still do. And not to disparage Columbia, but I didn't, you know, when I was here, I was always doing something productive, well, I, I, trying yeah, to do something productive. I mean, Dana, I, I live in Columbia. We, we had a, the first two weeks in June could have just as easily have been August. <laughs> I read. So, you know, know, yeah, we'd rather be in Edisto. We're not mountain people, but. You know, folks do get out of Columbia in the summer just like they get out of Charleston. All right. But we, I'm looking at a 10-year gap now. You, you're a couple of years in Columbia. You go back up east. Well, I after spending some time here, and I also worked at the uh, 
uh, worked at the University of South Carolina for a, a little while in the computer programming department, and that was kind of a sidetrack uh, that actually turned out to be helpful. But what happened was I wanted to change jobs, and I found this position in the finance department at, at USC, and it was in, involved computers, which I didn't really know anything about. So I uh, learned how to program computers, and just as I was getting ready to start, I was going to take some time off and go to Europe, I fell off a cliff in the mountains near Bradley Falls, which some people may remember is very near Saluda, and it's interesting because of all the incredible hikes all over western North Carolina, the little salute of Bradley Falls is the most dangerous of all. <laughs> There's a steep, sharp precipice that I fell off of. It was only 40 feet, but it was enough to break my back. Dana, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Dana Beach, former director of the Coastal Conservation League, really about his experiences, how a young MBA ended up as a conservationist. You, you fell off the cliff, broke your back. You're obviously not going to run off to New York right away. Right. But I, I then spent some time learning how to program computers, decided not to head immediately to New York and spend another year in Columbia. But then I, I decided I, I really needed to get back into the mode of doing something that had a, more of a career path to it. And so I, I got a job in New York with an investment bank, and I moved up there in 1981 and worked for A.G. Becker down on Wall Street for my first entry into New York. But Tallulah, South Carolina is still there. You left New York and got involved in politics. Well, I did. And after, after working in New York for two years, this is a – it's sort of embarrassing really to have had eight jobs in eight years. But uh, I guess all I can say is that eventually to people who are in the middle of that, that it's, the good news is you may probably end up with something you like, which I did. I decided after two and a half years, met my wife in New York. She was working for Little Brown, one of the most venerable of all the publishing houses in New York. And she had been in the Peace Corps in Kenya for a couple of years before that and graduated from the University of Virginia, which is a pretty good school too. And she and I both decided we were so interested in natural history and in con and, and eventually decided conservation that we we both wanted to leave New York and move back somewhere that we could make a bigger impact than in in New York City which has by the way a wonderful conservation movement it, but it wasn't one, an area we knew or and and it wasn't where we wanted to spend our careers so you moved back to South Carolina you settled in the country, right? You bought some acreage in the country? We initially bought a, a lot on Edisto. Before we even had a, a, a house to live in, uh, and well, we almost before that, we actually rented an apartment on James Island, but we bought a, a, a lot on Edisto on Bailey Creek, which I still think is one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And we had a little trailer there that had a big porch, a little old mobile home with a big porch, and we would go out and sleep out there on the weekends and go bird watching, and I mean, there were, we saw everything. There were an, we had an alligator walk down our driveway one time. We saw, I can't even remember, but countless number of species of birds that, you know, actually were quite rare that, there. And we canoed around Bailey Creek and over to Otter Island, down to South Edisto, and really learned the low country, that was the experience that allowed us to really understand the landscape and the people because we quickly got involved with an effort to um, upgrade the classification of the rivers and creeks on Edisto. The, it was called water quality classification. And 
basically it would give it more protection. And so we spent a lot of time putting, I did the document together to do that, but more importantly, meeting people who also had a similar commitment to that kind of thing. But now you were doing this as a volunteer. You weren't a professional conservation person at this time. I I was not. At the time, I had, again, a a handful of jobs in Charleston. I was the finance director at the Gibbs Art Gallery for a while. I worked at the Medical University for a little while. But me, all the time, I was... uh, I was working as a volunteer with the Sierra Club, especially, but also Audubon to some extent, and uh, trying to promote policies that gave, uh, affirm the incredible value and beauty of of these rivers that I I understood uh, viscerally were important, but they didn't have the level of sort of statutory protection that I think we felt that they should have. Okay. Well, you were successful in your first effort there, right? Well, at the, at the time in, in 1985, roughly, so long ago, I can't even remember when it was, but it was in the mid-'80s, the, the state protection for the rivers and streams of the low country allowed sewage discharges. It allowed marinas in areas that we now consider sacrosanct, like the Ace Basin. And we were involved with a a decade-long battle to stop a large marina from going in on the the South Edisto, interestingly, at Prospect Hill Plantation. And, And Walter, I mean, as you know better than anybody, the the convergence of, of the natural landscape and the historic landscape is so poignant in South Carolina. The beautiful Prospect Hill Plantation is one of the most extraordinary, simple but extraordinary rice plantation houses still intact. I mean, it was quite elegant when it was built by Ephraim Baynard. It had uh, sterling silver doorknobs and all this stuff. But it was also going to be developed with 3,000 houses and a 120-slip marina in the South Edisto. Well, Edisto Island at that point had not been developed that way, correct? It it was more of what I call an organic model where, you know, people would move in and there would be two or three houses but big farms still intact. And there was actually active tomato farming and other farming, but especially tomatoes at the time on the island. So most of the island was either in agriculture or forest. Well, I, I know about the tomato farms because many, many years ago, I, I spoke for the little museum, the historical society there. And part of my honorarium was to take two five-gallon buckets <laughs> and go to a tomato field and fill them with tomatoes and bring them back to Columbia, <laughs> which made me a very popular neighbor on Hollywood Drive because I had lots of tomatoes to give away. Yeah, yeah. So, it, but the water quality issue that, that we talked about was the, the first time that you really got into a conservation issue, I don't want to say a conservation discussion dispute. What was involved with that about the water quality? How did that play out, and why was that important? Well, we— one, we were we were alarmed at, at, that this development right, was. Now, right, now, who is we now? Because you're still not. Right, right. It's no conservation. I, I guess I was, but also the people I worked with at C, with the little local Sierra Club chapter. You know, the the wonderful thing about Sierra Club is you can get in it as a volunteer and really make a big difference. The flip side of that is you get in it and you realize you're doing everything. You know, you're scheduling outings, you're scheduling programs, and you're also doing the conservation, just the nature of volunteer groups. Well, I know from uh, having been associated with Edisto after I married Neela, and for the, you know, the 10 or 12 years I spent there, is that the, the folks who have been on Edisto for a long time are very protective of that island. And I think Right now, about over half the island is under easement of some sort or another. So, yes, there'd have been kindred spirits for you. It it could not have been a more inspiring place to work. Not only because of the natural beauty, but also as you exactly as you say, because the 
the, the people there really were had such a strong bond with the land and the and the landscape and they were across the spectrum black white relatively newcomers people who'd been there for many many generations descendants of plantation owners descendants of slaves all came together around this this realization that the that one development was on knocking at the door and there were no adequate regulations or programs of any sort to to deal with that. Um, in fact, there were not even any institutions to deal with it. The Edisto Land Trust, which is a wonderful group, had not gotten started, and that started and really run beautifully by my friend Marion Brailsford. Uh, over, the num- over the years, as you noted, Edisto is now more than 50 percent under perpetual conservation easement. At the time, it was zero, or maybe the Edisto Beach State Park, you could say that was protected. That was about it, though. And and neither was the water water protected, because you could put sewage discharges into it. Now we think, how horrible would that be? Of course, no one would do it. But they were planning to do that in the 80s. They were, the developers were looking at it saying, these are this is going to be the next Hilton Head. That exercise that you're dealing with that issue, did that lead you into your connection with Congressman Ravenel, because he has an Edisto connection. I had worked with him because I was also the head of the the political action committee that the Sierra Club ran, and it sort of runs hot and cold. Sometimes you have somebody who's very active, and others it kind of languishes. But but at the time, I was interviewing candidates, and I think I'd interviewed him, and of course I knew who he was, but. I got to know him better because he is Cousin Arthur, as they call him, is one of the great, as he called himself, stomp-down conservationist of the low country. Mm-hmm. And, and the beauty of, 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 of that was that he really made it safe for Republicans to be conservation-minded. And actually, at the time, there were, you know, it wasn't as unsafe as it is now nationally, but Arthur was... Uh, unapologetically pro and pro environment and he loved nature i mean he loves nature he's to this day he's in his 90s he's still out in the francis marion looking at turkeys swallowtail kites he calls me up every now and then and says i just saw a swallowtail kite fly over the over the house out in the francis marion um, so it comes from that deep sort of historical but also visceral love for the landscape, not only the his- history of it, but also the just this incredible natural wealth of it. So how did you, how did, you know, Congressman Ravenel offer you a job? Well, I, I, first we, I was the, as I said, I was the head of the, the political action committee and we made endorsements of candidates who were running and, and he was running for the state senate at the time, and I recommended that he be endorsed by Sierra Club, and he was. He won. He served up there a couple of years. Then he decided he wanted to run for Congress, and he ran in and won in 1988. Uh, and, and, and when he was elected, he said, he asked me whether I'd like to be an, an assistant to him working on environmental issues in Charleston, and not to move to, to Washington, but to just work with his local offices um, and Georgetown and Beaufort um, and Hampton. And I said, I'd be happy to do it. And I'd love to do it. And I had a great experience. And that was sort of like round two of the barbecue tour, where I was going all over the district, meeting people, talking about issues that they were worried about or excited about. And I, I had a, another sort of deep immersion in the low country culture that I didn't really have growing up in Columbia. And you mentioned from Beaufort to Georgetown. In those days, the first district pretty much was the coast. Right. right. It, it's all chopped up now, but that was, that was the case. So you got fired. Well, I did, and I have to, like I say, I still, I talk to Arthur on a, 
semi-regular basis, and I love the guy. Um, and I think in retrospect, he probably did the right thing. But when Savannah was um, the town of Savannah, uh, had a number of paper mills, and the the state of Georgia, speaking of water quality, had reduced their dissolved oxygen standards to a point that fish couldn't even live in the river. Talking about the Savannah River. The Savannah River. And and there were these Union Camp major dischargers uh, that were putting what is called camp. Basically, they're putting effluent that was, that was sap, soaking up all the oxygen. And the Savannah is already a threatened river because it had been diverted and it had been uh, – there was a big weir there to keep, keep – it, it had been dredged. It, all sorts of things, modifications made to the river. And this was kind of like the nail in the coffin that all of us – that there would be even more pollution allowed by the state of Georgia to be put in the river. And I – that was a debate – that we were having here too. And so I said to the Savannah Morning News, Georgia is being profligate and cavalier with their beautiful natural resources. And Lindsey Thomas, who's also a friend of mine, was the congressman at the time from Savannah. And he called Arthur up and goes, what is, where do you get off with your assistant, this young guy criticizing my district and my industries? And that was probably stepping a little bit too far out of bounds. So Arthur said, look, we got a park company here because uh, you shouldn't have done that. And it turned out to be a good thing, really. I think we're right at the point now of the birth of the Coastal Conservation League. I notice in your book you talk about one of my former students, Brucey Alexander, uh, who was with the Nature Conservancy. So why did you decide this is what we got to do? We need something a different organization. You've got the Nature Conservancy. You've got the Sierra Club. Why the Coastal Conservation League? The the Nature Conservancy is I'm one of my favorite groups. And Brucey I, I, was, was a wonderful early director of the Nature Conservancy and really set it on the course to be successful on a national scale here. I mean, the Nature Conservancy, Ducks Unlimited, and DNR worked uh, together early on to, f- to really launch the Ace Basin Initiative. And I, I met Brucey. I think I met her when she came to Arthur's office and said, we need a national estuarine research reserve designation for the Ace Basin because we get some money, we can protect land, and these beautiful islands in the Ashipu, Cumbahee, Edisto Basin, which incidentally had really nobody had ever heard of that until the 80s when that name was created to define this new initiative. But anyway, so we, I got to know Brucey through that, and she had again come to Charleston to meet with me and Arthur, and I said, Arthur, we this would be great, and so he agreed and. He went to Fritz Hollings. You know, Hollings could do pretty much anything and Thurman together back in the day. And um, somebody, I think they met, went and met with, with Hollings about getting some funding. And they said, we'd like a National Estuarine Research Reserve. And he looked at him and said, well, why don't we get two of them? And it was, I guess, might have been Brucey and maybe somebody from Ducks Unlimited, maybe John Frampton with DNR. Why don't we have two, he said. They said, well, that'd be great. So they found, they started one in the Ace, but also they started the Wenya Bay one that Baruch is now running. And um, that meant a number of millions of dollars for land protection, which was not chicken feed back then. And um, I just was, again, I was lucky to meet them. But what I realized is that the the policy side of things, which is what I'd been working on with Prospect Hill, water quality standards, zoning and planning, which was being done by the local governments, needed professional full-time intervention. Uh, Sierra Club, as volunteers, could do a lot of good things, but they didn't have the the bandwidth to do the long-term advocacy 
that needed to happen to make the whole picture better from a policy point of view in the public sector. You know, there were at the time there was money, there were land, there was private land, and a lot of good work buying land or buying easements, but or having easements donated, but not on the on the policy side, and and that meant this vast landscape was open. Charleston County, for example, 300,000 acres, 400,000, I guess, zoned for three residential units an acre everywhere, including Edisto. Edisto could have had 75,000 houses built on it under the zoning that existed in the 80s. So I thought the only way we can get these things changed is to have a, a full-time operation. I can't do it as a volunteer, and 20 volunteers can't do it. So that's, um, we, Virginia and I drove up to uh, Chesapeake Bay Foundation, met with them and Coastal Federation. Those were models of groups that were working on the policy side of things. And um, I wrote a proposal, which I found out is what you have to do to get I didn't even know there were foundations out there that gave money to people. I that was like, wow, this is amazing. I can write a proposal and someone will write me a check for 50,000 bucks. That's uh, a fair amount of money back in 1989. It was it was amazing. And we and we had five grants. I think I think the largest actually the first of the first ones was 20 or 25,000, but we had five grants and and we covered our whole budget of $90,000 for the year. Uh, with those grants. And Jane LaRoe, who was my partner in starting the league, and Marie Thrower, who uh, was also the, was the third of the three of us, um, got it going. And we started in the William Aiken house in the breezeway that was enclosed. What, they, they gave you a spot? They, they did. I think we paid, you know, 70 bucks a month or something like that. <laughs> but it was great. But... You launched the Coastal Conservation League just in time to greet Hugo. It, it the timing was amazing. <laughs> we had li- we'd literally moved the stationery, the boxes into the office, stacked them up on the had them stacked around the the floors, and we heard about this monster hurricane. And Charlie Hall, who everybody revered, almost was hysterical with the fear that this hurricane would do immense damage. And he was right. So we stacked all the boxes up and put tarps around them and and put tape on the windows and everything we could think of doing. And then I went, came to Columbia because my, because my mother still lived here and by herself. And so we stayed with her on Brentwood in Forest Acres and ended up having as much tree damage up here as we did in Charleston. Uh, but no damage uh, to the William Aiken house. You know, some big limbs knocked off the magnolias. And uh, But the Francis Marion was now really talking, decimated. You're talking about the Francis Marion National Park. I mean, National Forest. National Forest, right. It's, a, it's the one of the great ecological jewels of, of South Carolina, of the country, really. All right. Let's take a few minutes and, and describe the forest at this time and what makes it so special. The Francis Marion is a, a quarter million acres, roughly, and it extends from Mount Pleasant up to the Santee River. It's sort of roughly triangular. It goes up Highway 41, 17, borders those roads, and then the Santee on the top. And it was, has been a lot of things. It was, when the Native Americans were here, it was a beautiful longleaf pine savanna, incredibly rich in wildlife and plant diversity. When Europeans came, there was farming eventually, and many, and the longleaf were the best trees. They were the king of the pines, great for naval stores, ship mast, all kinds of things, just like they were used for telephone poles. And so a lot of it was was logged, but not in a, sort of the industrial way that logging began to happen in the early 1900s, early 20th century. 
uh, it, it was sort of a random alteration of the landscape, but the seed stock, all the beautiful plant diversity was all still intact. And when the Forest Service assembled that land in the early 1900s, there were patches of older longleaf and some patches of farms. All right. This, this is the U.S. Forestry Service. Yes. And, it, and this is reflecting, I think, the Theodore, Theodore Roosevelt conservation effort, right? Exactly. President Theodore Roosevelt, who you know, really launched the modern conservation movement in America, uh, what got the Forest Service up and running and funded. It was actually existed before that, but it was an enormous fire in Idaho that uh, propelled the Forest Service to the forefront because a lot of the, the, the life-saving that happened out there was by Forest Service employees, and there was a tiny little agency at the time. Dana, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Dana Beach, former director of the Coastal Conservation League, really about his experiences, how a young MBA ended up as a conservationist. So we, we've got this treasure that's it's federal property. Can you hunt on it? Could you fish on it? What, what protection did it have? It was owned by the federal government, and it was managed under the Forest uh, National Forest Management Act, which is a convoluted, process-driven thing where you basically decide, what do you want your forest to be? And they were operating on what was called multiple use. So there was hunting, fishing, timber production. Uh, there were motorcycle trails. There were bicycle trails. It was everything. And what it was not, though, was a there was no ecological vision for it. And it was run at the time the Forest Service was dominated by industrial forestry people who basically were progressively converting that forest of longleaf to the faster growing, more commercially viable loblolly pine trees, which are Great trees, but they never existed in the vast swaths that they do today. But those are better than the slash pines they planted in the Midlands. They they made some big mistakes <laughs> with slash pine up here because it doesn't it grows great in Florida, but it doesn't grow great up here. Okay, so we're now Hugo, and I actually drove on the edge of the forest, you know, several months after the the storm, and it looked like somebody had gone in with a scythe and just whacked it all off. It was horrifying. And and the, the and to add to that image, the image of, of Bulls Island just across Cape Romaine, which was an old growth maritime forest, similarly d- obliterated almost. I mean, and I say obliterated, these hurricanes happen, have always happened, as far as we know. They always do a lot of damage, the seed stock remains in place and the forest grows back. But the difference is that in our era, we make decisions about what type of forest it is. And at the time, you know, there was an immediate push to to replant these commercial industrial loblolly pines as, as a plantation because that was what people thought they wanted out of the Francis Marion was timber production. And we argued uh, that it should be the native forest. All right. Again, when you say we, you're now talking about the Coastal Conservation League. Right. Jane and, and Marie Thrower and I, were we were on the staff and we were pushing for a restoration of what we call the – some people call the pre-Columbian forest. And it would have been what was there – pre-1492, but really a lot, pretty much there until the late 1800s. All right. So who's going to make this decision? This isn't a state decision. Right. The Forest Service is the decision maker. And there, again, is this elaborate environmental impact statement process where there's structured input. And I say this with great respect for the people who crafted those laws because it's a very orderly process of assembling all the data and everybody's opinion and trying to come up with 
the one that makes the most sense. But the Forest Service had already started replanting loblollies. They were going to, they decided, and the guy who was head of the Forest Service at the time, I think was Don Ng, they decided they wanted this production forest. And they were going to let the thing, the process move along, but meanwhile, they're going to replant. We went to Washington and we said, wait a minute now, you, you, you can't replant the forest without completing the the plan. You have to figure out what you want it to be before you start working on it. And they eventually did stop the replanting. And it was a wonderful conversation that we had because we had everybody from the timber industry weighing in, Bob Scott saying it's got to be all production, you know, didn't understand. My friend Ed Muckenfuss, who was at West Vaco, said, I don't know what you're talking about, this longleaf pine forest with all this diverse understory. I mean, we grow loblollies, and that's how we make money around here. I mean, and he was sincerely had not was not aware that you could manage for biodiversity. Well, people forget with the longleaf pine forests back in the 18th century, fairly clear understory. That's how Francis Marion moved so fast through the woods. It it is that it's such a beautiful forest, and so few people know about it or have seen it. If you go to Thomasville, Georgia, which is what we did, and we we met Leon Neal, who was the premier ecological forester in the world at the time, or certainly in the in the southern United States. But to your point, uh, William Bartram talks about John Bartram talks about riding through the forest of the giant longleaf uh, with the grassy understory because the fire would would sweep through these forests. The trees were mature and enormous, uh, but the there was no there was no undergrowth because they they burned every two or three years, and they would and so there was this beautiful, rich grassy understory that had four hundred different species of plants and. It wasn't all natural. In many cases, Native Americans would set fire to the undergrowth as part of the hunting process. Exactly. That's exactly right. And the, so this combination of man and nature have managed our forest for way before Columbus arrived here. So the, I want to call it the naturalization of the Francis Marion National Forest was one of 10 examples in your book you highlight as the successes of the Coastal Conservation League. Right. The, there, the others, we tried to, to pick ones that were illustrative of the, the range of work that, that, that the League did, but also that were exciting and made good stories. And, and I, I think, for example, Sandy Island was one of the great stories because it had had these very powerful owners that had a wonderful community and and the drama became nationally covered. Didn't John Rainey figure into that story somewhere? He did. He did. John Rainey, and this is actually, John Rainey was in, he was the chairman of Brook Green Gardens at the time. He was a great conservationist and he was trying to help figure out how to resolve the Sandy Island thing. And when he when he died, I mean, as you know, he had this tragic and totally unexpected death that really took a guy out of our lives who made a big di- was making a huge difference in conservation. Well, Alfred's telling me we've got about 10 minutes, so we, we need to, we're going to need to move on. Let's talk about what the what the league is looking for in the future? What are the plans for the future? That is a great question. And I, and I, we had a saying that we liked to repeat every now and then that it is all one big project. And what we meant by that was that urban design, which is so important to Everything, our lives, the use of fossil fuels, being able to walk or bike and or take transit and not drive everywhere, 
the consumption of land is related to the ecological health of the landscape, to the health of our agricultural economy, to water quality because urbanization damages and degrades water quality. And so if you think about the three-dimensional coast we have and the challenges that we face that are not all local, I mean, by any means, the most obvious global one is climate change and sea level rise. We have an enormous challenge ahead to sustain and in some cases revive the urban landscape to make it a great place for people to live and work, to secure and preserve the rural landscape and not only for its ecological benefit, but its cultural value, the Edistos and, and, and parts of Johns Island and Wadmalaw, Beaufort, for example, southern Beaufort County. I guess the, the point is that a healthy region, we've tried to feature this in a conference we had about five years ago, in the 25th anniversary, is, is an, a region that is healthy not only ecologically and, and from an environmental point of view, but it's healthy economically and culturally and socially. But it means very specific things have to change. It means the headlong rush to develop all the way up I-26 now where the Volvo plant is and further up to, toward Orangeburg, that has to be curtailed. The Cooper River has to be preserved as a historic landscape. The cities have to be deployed as places where people can live and work. And there needs to be more density in these downtown areas. One thing we pushed in Charleston and not everybody loved this, but we wanted to have more development downtown, so we have less of it out in the in the hinterlands. You said you pushed for more development of downtown Charleston, and I can imagine some of your friends saying, we don't want the development just like they don't want cruise ships. And getting around Charleston, Dana, is not easy these days. It is, it is not. I ride my bike. But the, 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 the thing about it, any, any city that's a living city, and Andres Dewani said this, any city worth its salt is going to have traffic congestion. And the key is not to eliminate it. It's not possible. But it is to, to manage it and give people as many options as you can give them. Give them a, an option to take a, a decent bus, to give them decent sidewalks and decent bike lanes. We can't get, you can't get from West Ashley across the Ashley River without risking your life. And some of my good friends do that. And so the, it forces everyone into an automobile, and most of the time those are sing, single-occupant automobiles. You know, count the number of people, cars with only one person in it. That is not a viable model for any region ever. It's not a viable model for Columbia either. Greenville actually is some of the bike improvements there are quite impressive. I mean, I just came down from Caesar's Head and saw a bunch of people out on the Swamp Rabbit Trail going out, out through Traveler's Rest. So it's possible. We have to have a vision. We have to commit to it, and we have to, we have to spend money. I mean, it, it, that's the bottom line. We aren't, you know, John Dunn said, no man is an island, no woman is an island. We've got to realize we live in a community, and community amenities that make places work are not free. Well, a recent story said that for Charleston to survive the rising tides, it's going to cost $2 billion. $2 billion is a lot of money, yes. But let's look at all the priorities and figure out where we really need to invest public dollars to preserve and and sustain these cities in the future. Dana, I hate to, to cut off our conversation, but... Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. So any last words for our listeners before we sign off? Well, Walter, your work has been such an inspiration to me and so important for me working in South Carolina, having being able to understand where we came from, how these cultural institutions evolved and why they are the way they are and why people, to some extent, behave the way they do in South Carolina. It's a fascinating state. Um, I love it, and I'm a native, but I didn't really understand it nearly as well 
as I, I now do because of the history that you've, you've produced. And I think anybody, I tell anybody who comes to work for us, you've got to read South Carolina history because you won't be able to, to understand what is going on when you're working on issues unless you understand the history. Well, I appreciate that. And we said it many times, not just about my history, but South Carolina has been shaped over three centuries now actually for almost four centuries, uh, by the interaction of, of various cultures. And uh, it's what makes us a very interesting place, sometimes hard even for those of us <laughs> who try to study it to understand, but it's fascinating. And you said several times, well, this is unique to South Carolina. I've always said anything worth studying, you can find a South Carolina connection. <laughs> so Dana Beach former director of the Coastal Conservation League and the co-author of A Holy Admirable Thing, Defending Nature and Community on the South Carolina Coast. Thanks for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Redger, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. For centuries, the Carolina Lowcountry has attracted and amazed folks with its diversity of flora, fauna, and it has a singular beauty. Some would say mystery. That's a term that Dana Beach used in his book. In the 18th century, they talked about the sinister beauty, the beguiling beauty of the Carolina coast. For those of us who have enjoyed it over the years, we understand its attraction, not just to native South Carolinians, but to people from literally around the world. Keeping the Carolina coast the treasure that it is will be a challenge. It has been, and it will continue to be one in the future. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.